The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 189. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of treatments can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction. With a proven, drug-free, holistic, evidence-based, step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, or just if you have any questions about addiction, call 1-866-231-5924. Today we have an interview with a lady named Brandy Winans. Brandy Winans is an inspirational keynote speaker and a life coach born in a small town in North Carolina while her father was in the Marine Corps. She grew up in St. Pete Beach, Florida and has lived in Northern Southern California and Mexico. Married to former pro NFL player Jeff Winans for over 30 years, She details their life story in her latest book, The Flip Side of Glory, as told from the wife's perspective. In a story of love, acceptance, and hope, her faith was tested beyond her wildest imagination after losing everything and learning that it's never too late to start over. She is a speaker an advisor for the National Football Players Women's Association, founded by Sylvia McKay and Irene Pridgen. She's a family advisory, she's on the family advisory board for Concussion Legacy Foundation, formerly sportslegacy.org, co-founder of Day for Our Children, Inc., member of the NFL Alumni Tampa Chapter, and a strong NFL advocate, speaking and reaching out to families and players who need help transitioning. Without further ado, let's talk to Brandy Winans. Brandy Winans, thank you so much for being willing to tell your story on the podcast. I did some research on you, and I think we're going to start talking about something that maybe I didn't read about. How are you? Thank you so much, Joni, for having me on the Addiction Podcast uh, today. I'm excited to be on. I think, you know, as we as we gain more wisdom, as we just talked about, um, it's you're more intent on sharing your story and being able to help others through it. I think so, too. And you definitely have not you have a history with drugs and i don't mean that your own personal addiction but you have a history start back at the beginning what what was your experience growing up in the area of drugs in the area of drugs i was first and foremost a marine corps brat and daddy's little girl i had two older brothers i had a mother who um had probably she today would have been diagnosed as bipolar but we didn't know that at the time. Um, she did try to commit suicide at 11. And um, she was on a, 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 a group of when, medications. When you were 11. When, when I was 11. 11, yes. When oh I was goodness. 11. And my older brothers are four and six years older. So it was, it was easier for them to kind of handle it. Although 
none of the family really handles anything like that. But my mother had decided one night she was going to commit suicide and she announced it. It's something like out of the scene of MASH when you saw the dentist go into and fold his arms. So if anybody who's never seen that movie MASH, uh, you don't understand what I'm saying. But um, she wrote an uh, eight-page letter. She had already been on Valium and a number of drugs um, with, her, with her primary care doctor and was already seeing a psychiatrist and decided she totally wanted to end it. And so she, my dad called us into the bedroom. I'll never forget it. And he said, look, that mom, the doctor says, mom needs to go through with this and do this, but we're not going to let anything happen to her. I had never in my life, he said, the doctor will be. So my mother sat at the dining room table. I'll never forget it. She sat at the dining room table and we were all kind of like, you know, like, oh, mom's at it again, you know, the crazy one. And so it didn't affect us in the dramatic way that you think about it until after. Um, so she sat at the dining room table and she did her thing. And when she was ready to pass out, she went over and we had the, the old time couch that rocked forward and back and made into a bed in our living room. And we were all in the family room and she went over and laid down and she put her she put her arms, she put herself all ready. She had the outfit that she wanted on to be picked up in. And, um, and she passed out. And my dad had just, my mom was about five foot tall and weighed about 80 pounds. So she was a little munch, little munchkin. You know what that's like. And um, anyway, my dad picked her up and took her in the car and took her to uh, Palms of Pasadena and pumped her stomach and they Baker acted her for three days. And when she came back, she didn't speak to any of us for about, I don't know, two or three weeks and nothing to do with any of the family because that wasn't what she wanted. And as she got on the proper bipolar medication, which I would call it now, we didn't know what it was called back then. Um, she started coming out of her shell. She was doing really well. And then my dad got cancer. And within four months, my father was, was dead. And I'm sorry. she was 40 and he was 43. And it <sighs> really hit hard. Um, my brother was overseas. My other brother was gone. And, um, and I was what you call stuck at home with the crazy lady at 13. And I was so lost. And my mother's personality had always been the little, I should have been the princess that she wanted. And I was a Tom girl. So um, she, she and I really, especially in my teenage years, started clashing to a point of, I couldn't handle her being at the toilet. She would go to work and she would come home. She was a fashion designer. She'd go to work and come home and then into a bottle of vodka. So there mm. was there was no family unit and she was smoking like a fiend. And it just took me to a point of um, putting my wall up. It was the only way that I could survive at that time. Um, I started getting into trouble. So I started going the opposite direction of the way I had been raised. We had been such a wonderful family unit with the Sunday dinners and the family outings and all of that until my dad died. And so I was really, really lost. And I started really looking for love in all the wrong places. 
and getting into trouble, getting it, getting expelled from school, getting, well, getting suspended, bringing alcoholic beverages. I was, I was, I was really, really lost. And at 18, I ran away to California. I okay. took a hundred dollars and stole my mother's car. Ah. I left her a note that I was going to pay for it though. <laughs> well, she had another car, but um, anyway, off to California, I went with one friend and really found a mentor out there that helped me. And in the interim, uh, my brother came back from Vietnam. He got involved with uh, CBS and eventually became a, a CBS uh, producer, senior producer, director, and was working all over the country. But sports was his his uh, key main factor that he worked with. And at that time, Gaylord Broadcasting was a local uh, CBS affiliate here. And so they, they had him pretty much going everywhere and then doing all the Buccaneer games and all this wrestling and all that here. A few years later, he ended up having a, a back injury. And unfortunately, um, it really was my first time to be involved with someone in my own family when I was out in California, I saw it all. I can't tell you. I was out there 10 years, came back here. Um, a lot of my friends were doing lewds. They were doing meth. They were doing all this stuff. And I, I had attempted, I had tried cocaine. Um, I didn't mind cocaine, but I realized I didn't have an addiction to cocaine. So I could do a toot at four o'clock and at 10 o'clock I'm in bed and I don't have to, you know, really was, I hate to say it, good drugs back then, but anyway, mm -hmm. um, not 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 crack or anything. That was about the only time that I ever did any drugs and came back here and my brother ended up um, having the injury and then all of his demons came out from Vietnam, PTSD. Uh, he went through so many different rehab facilities that my husband and I paid for and he was physically not ready to get the help that we pushed him to get. And I think sometimes as a family member, we end up pushing the family member to get the help and they're not, they're not ready for it. And so all right. it does, it just creates more turmoil, more turmoil, more turmoil until a point right. where, yeah. So Brandy, sorry to interrupt, but so after his accident, did he get addicted to painkillers? Is that what occurred? Originally he got addicted to painkillers and then he got into crack cocaine and lost everything. He lost his home on the water. He lost cars. He ended up um, at the Salvation Army. We ended up getting him into rehab that he didn't want. So he walked away from charter, you know, get help somewhere. But it was not a place for him, was not a fit for him. And eventually I became his guardian and um, got him out of the city to another veteran rehab facility up in Lake City. And that's where he died, unfortunately, at only 56. So we did attribute the, uh, the enlarged heart and the heart problems to, to, um, to drugs, unfortunately. Right. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you lost him. You know, and I can understand that once he started taking drugs after the accident, that that would bring up a lot of the, um, previous negative stuff that he experienced in Vietnam. I can, I can see how that would happen. Yes. So your other brother, he was okay, right? My other brother uh, was my half brother. My dad was married twice. And um, my other brother had had a really horrific experience. He was severely burned at two years old 
My grandfather mm. was a Mason and um, a Shriner and really saved his life. Um, he kind of grew up, um, he ended up coming to live with us. And my mother had a horrific resentment for him. And he was constantly in trouble to a point where he was at Mariana. He became part of the Dozier, the USF Florida. He was tortured up there. He ended up, I tell you, the grace of God took my, my older brother, George, to a place where I had not even imagined when we would go up to see him at Mariana, what was happening with the Dozier, uh, the Dozier property up there. These young, these young teens that were, were tortured, were put in holes. Um, He was, it was a miracle that he even survived and, and didn't come out bitter. Um, He ended up coming out just one of the softest, kindest men you would ever want to even think about and he ended up becoming a contractor um but he was in prison he was sent to prison at 18 for uh, probation violations and was at rayford for four years during all of this other hoopla that went on he was allowed to come home for my dad's funeral and then was sent back and that was um that was pretty heart-wrenching because he had to come home with a with a, a guard with him uh for my dad's funeral and um there was always conflict between he and my other brother that my other brother was the one on the pedestal and my other, my, myself and my brother were kind of the, you know, the black sheep, but um, down the road, my mother and I, we ended up getting back together and, and finding our, our peace. But after I moved back here, um, I ended up, I had gone through a couple of divorces um, like I said, I think I was looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> Years later, my, my psychiatrist said that um, since I couldn't rescue my dad, I was rescuing other men. Interesting. Yeah. So does that bring us forward to your marriage to Jeff and yes. what happened kind of after that? Yes. Okay. Um, I came back here and got into the media with talk radio and my brother was with CBS then and was doing all the Buccaneer games, uh, directing those with uh, CBS out of New York. And so I got to work on Bitafont and um, I had opened up a boutique when I moved back here and I was at a, a complex called the Breakers then on, on, uh, in Clearwater near the Clearwater mall where my, where my boutique was. And um, there was this handsome, I used to call him my Greek God, that ran into uh, with his Cadillac. Um, he was a, a Tampa Bay Buck, a, a professional former, uh, well, at that time he was a professional football player, had played for Buffalo, Tampa, and the Raiders. And um, he had always drawn my attention. And then my roommate introduced me to him one night at a place we used to hang out called Molly McGuire's. The, when he played for Buffalo, the owners of Molly McGuire's came down from Buffalo. So he knew the owners and he had owned a bar up there with them in Buffalo before. And that's where we met. And um, we started being friends for about six months. And then we had a car accident together and ended up together. And um, Jeff Winans, he was just an amazing, amazing, amazing man. And um, he had curly curly black hair and big brown eyes and uh, and he looked he did look like a greek god i called him my greek god six <laughs> foot six 290 pounds of just yummy so i can say that he was my husband so absolutely <laughs> um and so he played for the Buccaneers. What position did he play for the Buccaneers? He played offensive guard. He'd always started off with McKay at USC, 
um, always played defensive tackle. And then he had a short stint with the, um, with Madden, with the Raiders before Davis and McKay did the deal to bring him to the new franchise and Davis, um, brought him over and made him offense. So he started offense here. Okay. Did, and then he, <clears throat> excuse me from based on what I read, he, um, he definitely suffered injuries as an NFL player. When we interviewed Randy Grimes, who was also an NFL player, yes. he talked about the um, how easy it was to get painkillers. Did um, did Jeff also experience the same thing? Jeff um, was a very not really much of a drinker. He came from a from what we call an agricultural cow town in Turlock, California. Worked melons in the fields in the summer with his dad's best friend who owned. Um, uh, Turlock Fruit Company. So um, until he got to USC, he first took his first joint at USC. And then he got to Buffalo where he had a torn ACL. It was his first major injury. And that's when he was given painkillers. Um, in the locker room, exactly what Randy said, back in those days, they pretty much would stand in a line. You would go into your position. They would wrap you. They would uh, shoot you up with lidocaine, novocaine for whatever injury you were you were in. You would go over to the Toradol line and you'd go over to the heavy drug line. Um, pretty much. And people, you know, what you're doing there is you are you are part of the system. So you are relying on your physicians to know what they're doing. And all they're doing, if you've got that addictive personality, that chemical imbalance, you are just going to get drawn and sucked in. And that's what happened with Jeff. And by the time he got to Tampa, he was smoking pot, um, Coke, pretty much anything he'd get his hands on. And I did not recognize that at that time. Pot and cocaine at, back in the 70s were something that were more accepted and because I'd lived out in California in the entertainment industry, it was, it was no big deal to us. Um, right. But then you get into the Valium. And when Jeff, Jeff's final thing was, uh, and I don't even know, he was like, these guys have understood what pain is, what focus and discipline is. And, you know, you think that the amount of medication that they were inhaling, like Randy and my husband, that it would kill an elephant. Um, but he would end up with um, duragesic patches, 100 milligram duragesic patches instead of every Those three days. Those are pain patches? The pain patches. They, okay. at that okay. time, were only given to supposedly terminally ill cancer, pa cancer patients. Um, this was now, we're in the, um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, that, that would be every three days. So you get a 10 patch. Um, then that was like almost a thousand dollars. We had no prescription drug medication, uh, insurance. Um, he was by this time on Medicare, but they didn't have prescription drugs along with that. He take, um, was he still playing though? Was no, he still he's playing? Retired oh, now. oh, he was gone then. He retired. Oh, okay. He retired at 30 years old with the with uh, the Raiders in 1981 from, uh, oh, okay. from physical injuries. His total injuries were upper neck, lower spine, multiple back and neck injuries, um, 
torn ACLs, torn MCLs, two, two crushed ankles, broken toes, broken fingers, um, and multiple concussions. So, Oh my, I just, uh, so along with the, along with the duragesic patches, he was taking 120 soma. This is his monthly script. Duragesic patches, 120 soma, 60 10 mil valves, and 60 percodan for breakthrough, and then whatever else he could get his hands on, and and he could take a package of Claritin, for instance, or or a, uh, the Afrin, whatever he could take, he would inhale not just one, but on top of all of that, plus he was smoking pot. Um, had pretty much gotten off of the coke and anything like that. Never did any of the crack, but. Um, and three weeks before, uh, the week before he'd have to go back in to get another script, he would dry out. And then that would be a nightmare from hell for our family because he was now more angry, more not who he, not who I married, um, just ugliness, just ugliness, um, physical, emotional, just everything under the sun you can imagine. And then he would go pee in a bottle and they would give him another month until finally I had had an absolute conniption over these. These were pain management doctors too. <laughs> yeah. Well, we already know from the pain clinics in Florida, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing the right thing. Right. Did, was there any concept by Jeff that he maybe had a bit of a problem with all of these meds or drugs or? Well, in, in Jeff's mind, my brother had the problem. He was getting prescription drugs. Now my brother was also on, I don't know, 10 or 12 different medications and had lost his driver's license and so forth and so on. But in Jeff's mind, he was getting them all from his physician. And, um, and so it was okay and nobody understood what his body went through. And I was an athlete. Um, I sustained multiple injuries too over the years, but you know, I, I avoided pain medicine. I don't like the way it made me feel. And, and so, you know, when you start seeing the amount of drugs and how they're able to physically function, I think that was something, you know, Randy and I have talked about it before too, because you're able to physically function and you wonder when that, when you're going to ever peak there, because it seems like you aren't going to peak. It just keeps going and you just need more and more and more and more and more. And then you have blackouts and then you can't remember things. And I was attributing Jeff's uh, prescription drug and being disabled from football to not thinking that he had um, head injuries as well that were, that were taking a toll on him. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. 
or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I just think that the the cocktail of all of those pain meds, and I understand he was likely in pain from the injuries that he had, but I just think that the cocktail of all those pain meds, along with the CTE, brain injuries, that is just a lethal combination, as as we know, as we know with um, Grant Fiesel and... Right, right. Yep. You know, when I decided to write the book, I had tried to get Jeff, I wrote the book, The Flip Side of Glory, and I'm getting, I'm writing now The Flip Side of Glory, the final chapter. Um, I wanted to tell the rest of our story because it had gotten so bad with Jeff and I that we divorced. I didn't know I was getting a divorce. And I, he, he decided he was going to move back to California. I was, he was going to stay here. And, and I could see then, you know, I mean, the last four or five years when we were together at that point was just horrific. And he had tried to kill me one night. It it had just gotten um, so out of hand. And, and our son was living at home most of that time. And so one of the things that, that we've talked about before is that it's the family unit that is behind the scenes, trying to push forward to, to, to say, you know, people don't understand what goes on behind closed doors. Like in our, in our case with just profession, when the shoulder pads and the helmets come off and the family unit is lost in transition. But when you're, when you walk out that front door, when your man or your woman, whatever situation you're in, it does, it's not always athletics, um, walk out that front door. You still want them to have some sort of honor and integrity in the community. So we're we're all behind closed doors, shoveling it in and hiding from society. Not not, not you know really afraid. Well, if if I say something, my husband might lose his job, or my wife might lose her job, um, or my child. You know, he's got that scholarship over here. Or she's you know she's going she's going into the medical profession, and now she's addicted to drugs. So when you start seeing all those things, the family unit is broken and and you have to go in and understand and help the family unit to sustain. We didn't have any of that when Jeff first left football, which is why I started Pro Athletes Transition, because, you know, when you leave from an injury like Jeff did, then you have depression, which creates financial difficulties, which creates a lot of family interference. And if the family is, isn't not isn't on the positive side of trying to help, the one thing that I did learn in, in my relationship with my brother and in helping others um, who are transitioning out of whatever, if it's drugs or alcohol, or if it's just transitioning out of the game, is that without the family support, that player um, 
they are lost. And usually when you're on the drug realm of, of, of going in and taking as many drugs, you're hiding from, from society for some bigger and greater purpose. And you have to go back and dissect that. You have to go back to the beginning and understand, as you know, in what you guys do, um, you guys are amazing with Narconon and everything that you guys do. Um, I've seen amazing results from it. Um, you have to get to the heart of things because a lot of things are learned behavior and you're seeing it in the family unit. It, you've got to break some of that generational curse to get past that. But the family unit has to be supportive. And it's very, very difficult when you're living in that world and you don't want to be supportive anymore. I, I can understand that. You know, I think with, and, and thank you for the validation. You know, it, the one thing that Narconon says and that we believe is that drugs are the solution to the problem. When I look at Jeff, and I didn't meet him personally, so this is just from what you're telling me, what was underlying his drug problem were actual physical injuries, which had insurance been there and, you know, whatever follow-up program that I'm hoping the NFL does now had all that been in place so that he could get the proper surgery right. and the proper medical handling, you know, the drug, the drugs might not have followed, I, you know, it's right. like they're, there, that underlies that when you're in that but, much pain and you have that much injury, I can't believe that I wouldn't take some kind of pain medication right. if I had that much injury. And, and that was the area where when he first left football, I was thrown into the role of sole support of our family. He would literally live, live on the floor with pillows elevated under his knees because it was that painful for him to move around and the only way that he felt that he could sustain at one time, I mean, he also tried to commit suicide. Um, he thought that was the only way that he could support me. And this was before I got pregnant with our son. But here's, you know, there, there's a setting stage there, too. Just when we were getting back and he was getting off the drugs, we have a gunshot accident. Which I now read takes that. it to that level of he has to sustain pain medication and he was not expected to live. Um, three days after the accident, um, I found out I was pregnant with our only son. So there was a blessing, which I think kept him alive. But also, going back to Jeff's story, he had a lot of underlying emotional turmoil that he had never resolved from his own family unit. Mm. And so wanting acceptance from his family. He, he, did, he didn't gain that. And then he felt like a failure when he couldn't, he couldn't provide for me, or he felt like a failure when his family looked at him that he got injured and he couldn't be the man that he was supposed to be. And so a lot of things like that, besides a chemical imbalance, which I, I know in his other family members also had, and there was alcoholism there. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it's an umbrella that just starts to sustain itself underneath. And then it's dissecting all those things to, to come to, to some sort of um, a peaceful mode where, where that person is really willing to want to get the help that they desperately need. And then seeing those changes when they do, when, when we got back together, 
um, we were apart three years and, and Jeff found his spirit and he put his wall down and he wanted to get the help. But until he wanted to get the help, we were never going to get back together. And I could not help him until he wanted the help. That's right. That's exactly right. You, it's why I think um, interventions become so important because yeah. the interventionist basically has to get the person to see that they need help and that they need to do something about it. So you guys divorced and then you got back together. Yeah. When did you get back together? What year was that? We got back, started getting back together uh, towards the end of 2010 when okay. he had started getting, he got the help he needed. He actually got into rehab. I was at an NFL conference speaking um, at a veteran summit in uh, Las Vegas and the NFL had brought out um, some, some people, Andre Collins and Miriam Fleming talking about the new benefits. Um, part of what I ended up doing over, over from 2007 until that point is we had been able to get the media involved. We've been getting better, the me, the NFL to finally come for, to fruition to start helping players. And we were able to do that through the 2007, 2009 congressional hearings. So towards the end of 2010, um, Jeff and I got back together because a few months prior to that, I was speaking and um, there were some doctors there from a place called the Summit Lodge in Utah. They were trying to get involved to get players to come to get help and get detoxed was the main thing that they were going to do and then help rehab. And Jeff had been ordered by a judge in California to get to rehab, but I couldn't get him in anywhere because nobody took Medicare. So if you didn't have the money and we didn't want him to go to jail, he was under house arrest at that time from three DUIs of, of blackouts and, and um, arrests in California after he went back. And so um, I was able to, these guys came over, they heard me stand up and talk about, you know, my frustration. I'm trying to get him help, help, get me some help. So Dr. Dr. Hansen came over with this other guy and they said, I was in tears and they said, can we have lunch with you tomorrow? Can we find out about Jeff's story? Because maybe we can help. And between us getting the, we got him, we got the judge to sign off and got him to rehab. And he found his spirit there and he got detoxed and they basically took him in the hospital for the first four or five days and pretty much drained him out and got him back. So you had him with you back in good shape before I he had, passed away. I had him back. Then all the things that we were ignoring, so to speak, because we had... We knew about uh, concussions. I was very much involved with Concussion Legacy Foundations, uh, Sports Legacy. Uh, I had met Chris Nowinski even before um, before he started these things. When he when he had been on an HBO Real Sport interview, and he was talking about a book he'd written called Head Games, and he was talking then about the symptoms and signs, and every one of them was Jeff. And I had just gotten my divorce papers in 2007. And I, I, I got this knot in my stomach and I said, could it be prescription drug addiction and physical injuries or could it be something else? 
and I found him on the internet and he said, you got to come testify. I'm going to put you in touch with Linda Sanchez's office. You got to come to the hearings. You got to come up there. And when I walked into the door at the, at the DICA press conference from 1981 to 2007, we thought we were the only ones alone going through all of this hell. I fought 16 years to get my husband's disability pension. And there was all these other families going through this turmoil that we had and we started putting our support groups together. Uh, but the blessing of us getting back together was such a blessing for our son too, because our son had come to a point with his dad, we didn't realize that he was now having blackouts and seizures not from prescription drug medication because he had been weaning himself off because we were getting remarried, but it was the concussion and he did pass away with stage three CTE. And on my way out, HBO had called me out the door in 2007. Do you have other families? Do you have people that want to talk? But at that point in time, there are very few families would come forward because again, you, you don't want it. It's things we don't talk about. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so sorry that he passed away. It's such it's so sad because he he finally got clean and as you say found his spirit and found himself and the physical injuries were such that he couldn't make it and that's just it's just tragic. It is and that's why I want to I'm writing the final the flip side of glory the final chapter because my first book ends in 2007 after we had just separated and and I want to tell the rest of the story because we had gotten involved in a concussion settlement we had we had re rekindled our we we never really stopped loving each other we didn't like each other at times <laughs> but we never stopped loving each other and the blessing was when you go back to the family support, the family unit, is that my son had his dad back. Just like before my mom died, I had my mom back. Um, those are priceless things because in the end, it isn't the memory of all the hell you went through. It's, it's the memory that there was peace, love, and joy within your family unit. And a lot of times we see, and I've seen a lot of unfamily moments where such tragic, tragic stories, such tragic things have happened um, yep. with people and, and feeling like there is no hope. Yep. Do, is, do you experience some of that with your work that you do with the NFL alumni? Do you see this type of thing happen? I, I see it happen. And I tell you, you know, it's been a fascinating ride ever since I did. My book came out uh, in 2008. The HBO Real Sport interview came out with myself. Um, I had gotten the DeMarcos, Brian DeMarco and his wife, Autumn. And we had gotten Cindy Phillips to come forward and do the interview with me. And it was interesting how after that happened, um, all of a sudden, I had emails, phone calls from Europe, Canada, the United States, football, hockey, baseball, um, not really basketball. Um, I just saw your interview. I just, I just saw your, uh, I just read a portion of your book on, on Amazon. I just, I just read your book. You're telling, you're, this is my life. I need somebody to talk to. And 
I wasn't out there. You know, we go through life. We're not looking for it. But when you're called upon, um, it really is an honor on one side. On the other side, if you're able to reach out and help somebody through your life experiences to tell your story. And the one thing that I learned over the years is never be afraid to tell your story. Um, I've worked with DJJ teens and young adults in prison from my, from, from what I give back now to circuit six and, and all over, um, never be a tell you, don't be afraid to tell your story, you know, um, getting kicked out of high school, all the different things that I went through was a platform and a stepping stone to take me to where I am now to be able to reach out and help others from it. And I think that's the greatest gift that we all get from it and the rewards are, you know, I, I had a, just one last funny story. I had a, um, a young baseball player, so it wasn't all football. And, and I, I have been getting, I have worked with people all over the country, as I said, um, even down in San Diego with the Crosby center, um, just pick up the phone and say, are you so-and-so I need to talk to you. And I'd say, okay. Or will you talk to my wife? Will you talk to my girlfriend? Will you talk to my mother? They don't understand what I'm dealing with. And that's how pro athlete, I saw, finally, I just got to give it a name. I'll give it pro athletes transition, transitioning you and your family, because, um, you know, it is a, it is a, it is a whole transition and put a new playbook together and help whether you're an athlete, whether you're coming from a dysfunctional family, um, whether you've just lost your job and, and you are on, on dire straits, maybe you've had a drug addiction. It really doesn't matter. But now we have resources um, like the, like like Narcanon. We have resources. If I can't help you and you're over my head, then maybe a group of us can help you. And that really that really is 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 coming full circle for everything. Right. You started to tell a story about a young baseball player. Yes, Ryan. Ryan called me out of the blue out of Atlanta. Uh, needed somebody to talk to, um, had been semi-pro, married, kids, um, wanted to reach out and help others, and but what needed to heal from some of the things he'd been going through and being lost in the transition. And um, while he was there, he and I talked probably maybe first six months what was funny is his next door neighbor and the neighbor over here and the other neighbor over here, and they had moved into this neighborhood and they had um, other kids in the neighborhood. They had children. And so the parents and the couples get together and Ryan starts feeling like he's got all these other couples that need help, not going where he wanted to go. So it was kind of funny. So we're talking. And then I get a call from a young man named Daryl Stenson. I can say Daryl's last name because I just did an interview with him last week. Um, this was three years ago and Daryl had been a collegiate football player, had had severe back injury, was totally devastated from it to a point where he tried to commit suicide a couple of different times and it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. Ended up in a psychiatric ward and really just, and now was married with children and had moved from Michigan to Atlanta. And they were pretty much in the same age range. And I thought, hmm, God just said, hey, you know what? So I said to, um, I said to uh, Daryl, I said, you know, 
I ran across, I got another guy in Atlanta that I really want to partner you with. And this is how life goes. And this is why we're all here to help each other because now they are like ebony and ivory. Okay. Um, I, I remember they did their first workshop together. They had seven people. Um, and now Daryl has written a book that is um, premiering tomorrow. And I was trying to help promote his book from last week called uh, Life After Sports. Life After Sports, Daryl. Okay. Um, because that is where we're all at in this world. And we're in such turmoil in our in our country right now. We, we, we've got to come together as a nation, as a family unit. The family unit has, has, has been destroyed. Um, and I see it complete. You know, it, it goes back to learned behavior in the family unit and bringing us together and helping each other. I agree. I think you make some very good points. And I think that no matter what someone is going through, there's somebody out there to help them. And I think that's, that's what your story kind of tells me is that, and what we try and tell people is you're not alone. You're not the only person going through the situation you're going through. If you have a loved one who's addicted, you're not alone. If you are addicted, you're not alone. If you are in recovery, but struggling to get back into life, you're not alone. All you have to do is reach out. Um, Brandy, do you have a way that people can reach out to you? Yes, I do. Inspirational, motivational speaking as well. And I do workshops. Um, They can reach me at brandywinans.com. They can reach me, um, pretty much Google me really. Uh, I'm kind of all over the place. My, my personal email is livespeaker, L-I-V-E-S-P-A-K-E-R at AOL.com. Um, that's usually the quickest and easiest way to reach me. You, um, I have a foundation of my own called Day for Our Children. So I work with my uh, wannabe outreach ministry through that and through my educational workshops and seminars that I also do for our teens and young adults. And my pro athlete transition side is... Um, it doesn't, you don't have to be a professional athlete. I work with high school, collegiate, elite, and pros. And I work with the family unit um, from high school level on. And I think that's, I think that's huge because I think that often, like football is a very rough sport. And, you know, even kids who are playing football in high school can end up with an injury and football is all they know. So it's kind of a it's kind of a similar thing where they could reach out to you. Brandy, thank you so much for being willing to share your story, being willing to give us your personal email, just being willing to be there for people because I think that that's huge and that's the message we put out all the time. You're not alone. There's someone there to help you. You just have to make that first reach out. Yeah. And I appreciate you so much doing what you're doing and also being willing to tell your story. Thank you so much. And Joni, I just so appreciate you guys having me on today and allowing me to tell my story. Absolutely. Thank you for being with us today. I think that Brandy had some very good messages about how the family is affected by drug addiction and how the family needs to stay together not enable, we know that enabling is not a good idea, but how the family unit can be a support unit. I'm sorry that her husband didn't make it because it sounds like he was on the upswing, 
but had such physical injuries that even though he was clean from drugs, he wasn't going to make it. I have said this before to uh, parents who listen or loved ones who listen who might have a young family member that wants to get into professional sports. Just be very careful. It's very easy to become addicted to painkillers once injuries start occurring and just be careful about it, especially parents if you have young kids who are in professional sports. Don't let them go down that road. If you have a loved one who is addicted, I'm going to give you the Narcanon number again because I want you to reach out now before the holidays. The holidays are super stressful for those addicted and super stressful for families of those addicted. The number is 866-231-5924. There's no obligation. You can call. You can ask questions. If Narcanon isn't the right program for you or your loved one, they'll let you know. But reach out. Reach out to someone. Reach out to Brandy if you need to. Brandywinans.com. And that's B-R-A-N-D-I-W-I-N-A-N-S.com. Reach out today. We'll talk to you again next week. Please be well. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.